And I remember that like distinctly when we got our first tour booked that I was, you know, standing online at customs and they were like, well, what is your profession? And I was just like, well, I guess I'm in Europe to play music. So I guess that makes me a musician. And I had to like write musician down as my profession. And it was so weird to me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about finding your unexpected path to a creative career. I'm your host, Rob Goodman. I am an artist and a storyteller and a marketer. And on today's show, I am so excited to have my friend Heather D'Angelo. Heather has had an amazing career. It has certainly been a winding road. She is one third of the amazing band Avoir Simone from Brooklyn. She is based now in San Francisco. She has started a perfume company. She is a scientist and a science writer. And on today's episode, you're going to hear my conversation with Heather. We talk all about her winding paths, all about her cross-cutting throughout these different versions of herself, which ultimately is really all about who she is as, as a person. All these different reflections in music, in science, and perfume is uh, is all about kind of the the oneness of of one individual. So we're going to talk all about this on today's show and I'm so excited to dig into the conversation. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you all about a really wonderful way you can support making ways. It doesn't cost you a dollar or a nickel or a sandwich or a song. It is going on to iTunes, to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review for making ways. It would really mean a ton to me. I put so much into making this podcast for nearly two years now. And leaving a review on iTunes is a really powerful way for more people to discover the show and get to know what we're doing. So if you have the time, fire up iTunes, open Apple Podcasts, and write us a review. It would mean a lot to me. And since we have Heather on the show, I thought it would be good to play you some of her music from her band, Avoir Simone. And here's a little clip from their album, The Bird of Music. It was also featured in Twin Peaks, The Return. Avoir Simone was on the stage and they were playing in two episodes and they're on the soundtrack. So this is a clip of A Violent Yet Flammable World. It's a So let's get started with my conversation with Heather D'Angelo. Heather D'Angelo is Hello. joining Making Ways. You are the first musician I have had on the show. I don't believe you. I don't believe myself but because I've been doing this show for almost two years and I'm like the biggest music fan and I have not had a musician on the show. That does not make sense. I actually it, kind of think of you as a musician. That, you're, that's, you're a musician's musician. I really appreciate that. That makes <laughs> me feel so good um, coming from a professional uh, such as yourself. 
So I am so excited to have you on the show because you're a musician with Avoa Simone and a scientist and a writer and a perfume maker and all of these things. And why don't you talk to me a little bit about what's been going on with Carta, your perfume fragrance. And I do want to hear about how someone jumps from being a musician to making perfumes. But just tell, tell the audience a little bit about the perfume and what's been going on the past couple of years. Okay. Um, so I moved to San Francisco about five years ago from New York. Right. And I always wanted to be a perfumer. Or not, I shouldn't say always. I've wanted to be a perfumer since at least for over 10 years. But I wasn't able to because perfuming, like any kind of craft, imagine if I got into ceramics, I'd have a similar story or something like that. But it involves a lot of stuff. Like you need a lot of bottles and scales and beakers and like jugs of alcohol. There's a <laughs> lot of stuff involved in perfuming. And as a New Yorker uh, who lived in small apartments and as a musician who was on tour for like 300 days out of the year, um, my situation was not conducive to hoarding materials. So <laughs> when I moved to San Francisco, I uh, started living in a really nice house that I was eventually kicked out of because the rent was raised $8,000 a month. Um, wow. Yeah. But before the rent was raised, um, I had a both a music studio and a perfuming studio. And that's when I began collecting materials and having the space uh, to start teaching myself how to become a perfumer. Did you go to school for making perfumes or did you teach I did yourself? Not. I am a self-taught perfumer. Many indie perfumers are self-taught. Um, there's a lot you can teach yourself just on books and YouTube videos. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it started out kind of more as just a, probably a scientific curiosity about like, how is perfume made? Um, definitely also influenced by the fact that I'm the type of person that if I ever had some money to burn, I would buy a luxurious fragrance from Barney's, mm -hmm. more of a fragrance person than like a shoe person, a bag <laughs> person. Um, but yeah, so I, I was like, you know, I can probably make perfume. I can figure this out. And, um, I, I actually, yeah, I studied for about three years before launching my company. Okay. Um, so yeah, it took a while before I had anything I thought that I could share with the public because <laughs> everything before that was pretty gross. Is there like a blooper reel somewhere, like a montage oh of all God. the failed experiments, like a Swamp Thing style um, <laughs> gone wrong? There's more like a lot of roommates that had to suffer my early creations and I made them all <laughs> smell really bad. <laughs> <laughs> they like came back from their day. They're like, this person I was seeing stopped seeing me. Um, my coworkers don't want to get coffee anymore. Exactly. Um, you, you need to go back to the drawing board. I was lucky to have some really great guinea pigs yeah. in that house. And now, three years later, you have a perfume out and you're teaching mm -hmm. perfume making many, many times during the week here in San Francisco to to folks who want to learn just like the basics and they leave with a, a scent? They do. So I teach um, intro to natural perfuming and um, natural, not because I think that synthetics are bad or anything. It's just that in an intro class, um, it's a lot easier to work with just pure essential oils and isolates. Synthetics are a little bit difficult to work with, although I am a mixed media perfumer. Um, and yeah, so I teach an intro class. I teach it through Airbnb experiences, which mm. I love. Um, it's a super like 
it's just a wonderful platform uh, for wow. discovering events around the city. And um, I am about to launch an advanced perfuming class because at this point I've taught so many people that um, they've come back to me saying, you know, but I'd like to work with synthetics or I would love to take your class again, but not have to sit through the hour long science lecture about like what is an essential oil. So um, I will be launching an advanced class soon. Wow. And I want to dive more into the perfume, but we have to talk about your life as a musician. <laughs> um, you talked about being on tour like 300 days a year. You were in the band for... It's been 15 years. 15 years. We have not like officially broken up. <laughs> <laughs> so still still in there. We're, was just on the incredible season of Twin Peaks. Was that last year? Yes. Yes. In... And actually, we um, we played our first show in like... I think it had been four years since we had played a show, which is kind of crazy. And um, David Lynch had asked us to perform at the Festival of Disruption in New York. He has the Festival of Disruptions often. There's like one in LA and one in New York um, at least twice a year. But um, the one in New York was a big deal because it was – um, you know, like after like Twin Peaks and everything. Um, and we weren't able to make the LA one. He had asked us to do that one, but um, I'm the only one that lives on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And so I flew to the East Coast uh, last May to do the New York one. And it was amazing. I mean, like we shared the bill with like Animal Collective and, um, and uh, oh my God, I'm blanking on other names. It's terrible. <laughs> was it surreal to like <laughs> jump back into that life? Extremely, (laughs) extremely surreal. Like, first of all, I never tell like people I meet in San Francisco that I am like, A, a musician, B, was in a band that like some people know. And like, I don't talk about my musical career here. And I I like that. I like that. Like, like I'm a perfumer now. Like that's what I do here. But, um, was that part of your move? Like (laughs) reinvention? You're like, Sometimes when I go back to New York, that's where I'm from as well, I, I walk past or drive past places where I've lived my life. And I just wonder, I'm like, is is that scene happening in there in some way, in some dimension? Could I look in and, and see younger Rob doing whatever? Um, is that part of what New York houses for you? Oh like God. a certain encapsulation of who you were I can't believe we haven't talked about this before. Yeah, New York is super haunted for me. I mean, it's, I lived all over the East Village and all over Brooklyn. And I actually moved from Manhattan and Brooklyn so many times, I never did jury duty because every time (laughs) that I got served, I already moved to another borough. And you can't, you can't do jury duty if you live in like the borough where you weren't served. Wow. Um, Yes. That's that's a, it's a good tip. It's a good tip. Anyone that does not want to do jury duty ever in New York City, just move to a different borough. Yeah. That Um, that speaks to jury duty. Like (laughs) moving is a better option. Yeah. <laughs> not not exactly. Um, no, it's not like I mean, it's. But so wait, so but here you just you just that just doesn't come up. Is it, it just because you're that's not where your mind is right now? Like that's yeah. not where your it's your focus my, is. It's not where my focus is. It's not where my mind is. Yeah. Um, so to go back to New York and play a show and step weird. into those shoes, you were like, "Who am I For tonight?" Thousands of people. Also. <laughs> Like also, which is super weird. Right, I mean, no like club show warm up gigs. No, it was and like, I wish there had been like at least a warm up or something. Like I had like one of the weirdest moments of my already like kind of weird life was definitely like last summer, standing on a stage like 
I mean, I also like do science communication for like a lab at, at, we were at Stanford. Now we just moved to Arizona State University, but my life here is like science communication and my husband's a tropical ecologist and I do perfume. And then suddenly I'm like standing on this stage and I know there's like thousands of people out there and I haven't performed in so long and I naturally have stage fright. And I had this moment where I was like, I have no idea if I can do this. Like I used to be able to do this because after years of like training myself to get over the stage fright, like mm-hmm. just by like the sheer repetition of like the trauma every night you can get over it. But, um, but yeah, just standing out there being like, I don't know what is going to happen when I walk on this stage and feel those lights and will I be able to play this show? And I honestly like, didn't know until I was like walking out to my, you know, keyboard setup. And it's so funny. It's like, I, I don't know if it's almost like a muscle memory or some type of like psychological muscle memory, but like my body just like immediately knew what to do, which is like you have an out-of-body experience. And my brain, I can only describe it goes into like robot mode where I'm just like perform the song, you know, <laughs> like just like your hands go here. This is what you're saying. Perform the song. Next song. Like you just do not think like you cannot overthink anything. Like I don't even see the audience. I almost like black out. And then at the end of the performance, I'm just like, okay, it's done. Great. Like it's, it's really, really weird. Was it always like that? Or was it especially like that in this New York show because of the the time between? It was playing? always like that. So And do you feel like that's unique for you because of this stage fright you had? You needed to like. (laughs) No, I I think I, um, no. I mean, I never wanted to be a musician. That was not something like, like, unlike a lot of people, I didn't, I was not raised in some musical family. I didn't have music lessons. Um, I, even when Annie and Eric and I first started working together, uh, I didn't know we were going to become a band, like, let alone, like, that would be our thing. Like, it was, like, just an after-work fun get-together with some girlfriends. Like, that was what it was. And um, and so when it became, like, my my career, you know, and, and I remember that, like, distinctly when we got our first tour booked, um, that I was, you know, standing online at customs and they were like, well, what is your profession? And I was just like, well, I guess I'm in Europe to play music. So I guess that makes me a musician. And I had to like write musician down as my profession. And it was so weird to me to have to like say like, okay, I guess I'm a musician. So um, it was really hard for me to transition into a performer. I'm an introvert and... um, I had not been trained to be a performer. Not like a lot of people are trained to be performers, but yeah. I, I think that's actually, I think I share that with a lot of musicians that are not, especially indie musicians, like we're not trained to be performers. And um, I think alcoholism, that's like where a lot of that comes into play. I mean, the first time I ever played a show, the only way I got through it was with tequila. <laughs> and then and then after that, like you drink a lot of wine or like it just liquor becomes so much a part of like how you get over mm-hmm. the stage fright. And then I, you know, quickly realize like once you realize like, oh my God, this is actually my career and I don't see this ending. Like you kind of have to figure out, well, I don't want to be an alcoholic. Right. So I've got to find another coping mechanism to get through this. 
And at some point, um, this kind of like out of body experience thing started happening for me when I, you know, I, I don't know how that happened, but that is thank, you know, thank goodness. Wow. Is what happened. <laughs> and once you came back to your body in that New York show, you had done it and the crowd was there. What, what did it feel like walking off stage? Were you like, can we play like five more shows oh next God, week? No. Or were you like, oh, no, I'm it's good. like relief and thank God that's over with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, yeah, it's funny that way. I don't like, I've never liked touring. I don't like performing. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a weird way to engage with people, I think, is in general. And I think teaching perfume is um, related to that. So my, my problem with performing is that I don't like one-way one way, uh, transactions with people. Like yeah. When you're performing, I don't like feel like I, I feel like I'm just totally disconnected from the audience, which is probably like means I'm a really bad performer. <laughs> like I've heard that people are like supposed to feel like really connected with the audience. And I'm so jealous of performance. Like, oh, I just feel so like at one with right, right. the people who are watching me. I'm like, no, I feel like I'm like being like scrutinized and like I want to die. <laughs> and, like, and, stop looking at me. And then, like the audience is like sucking my will to live. <laughs> Where like as, as a teacher, like that is such a, like a, for me, like a really enriching and fulfilling, like deeply fulfilling and satisfying way to interact with strangers, which is like, I'm going to share something with you and you're yeah. going to like share something with me. And right. it's a two-way street and I'm teaching and you're learning and you're asking questions and I know the answers to those questions. And um, so I really love teaching. Yeah. I wish performing was more like teaching. Yeah, that back and forth. Yeah, that back and forth. Sometimes there is back and forth, but it's usually not a good <laughs> a, good, a good a good one. Well, we've had beer cans thrown at us. Oh, gosh. <laughs> when we were performing, I guess that's kind of an interaction. Yeah, it's not, not an ideal one. <laughs> we've had the, like, take your bra off. Like, that's a that's an interaction, I guess. Yeah, there's there's something there, but it's not welcome for sure. <laughs> no. Um, were you enjoying the creative process over, like, the, the main portion when you were making music over all those years? Would, would, like, the studio time, the creation process be where, like, a lot of the the joy and energy would 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 spring from? Yeah, absolutely. Like I would not have stayed in it as long as I had if there wasn't that. I mean, yeah. it's like there's nothing better than writing music with people who you can write music with naturally. Yeah. Um, I've never found that with anyone besides Annie and Erica. And I've really, really tried, but we just have like something that's just completely magical between yeah. the three of us. And it's like... um. It's funny because like we all learned how to, you know, we all learned transcendental meditation. You know, you kind of have to, but like that's. Um, wait, wait, be, you say that because of the David Lynch connection? Yeah, I mean, it's. it's he, he became a fan of the mm -hmm. band and reached out and then, and that's how you. Yeah. Twin Peaks and, and this concert and. Exactly. Yeah. That happened in, I think it was 2007 is when we connected. Okay. Um, and he like very generously offered us to, you know, offered to have us learn transcendental meditation and. Um, because you know, it's, it is really, really helpful for artists and I, I do continue to practice it and I really love it. Um, but the funny thing about like learning meditation is that I realized I had already been meditating through creative practice. Like when I am making music with Annie and Erica, I am meditating like that. It feels the exact same way for me. So, um, so to 
when I started doing transcendental meditation, it was like, oh, this is another way to take me to that place that I can only get with Annie and Erica. Like a creative flow state or just like a joy in expression or? It's hard to describe. It's kind of... um. One feels like very active making music and one feels passive to me, meditation. But I guess meditation, is there's an activeness to it as well. I I mean... It is kind of passive. You're like a receptacle. Like when I was writing music with with them, I just kind of felt like I was, um, something was coming through me. Like I was just like a vehicle for something else and completely just connected to them. This is sounding like really cheesy, but like very connected to them in oneness. Like I felt very like one with them. And when you meditate, you feel very at one with like the universe. So it's it's both active and passive in some ways. Yeah. Um, but it's really hard to find that like that kind of mental space in your normal life. And and I've never found it with other musicians, which is hard. You know, I've tried and like it just always seems like more like a struggle. But for some reason, you know, with these two amazing women, I can do that. Yeah. Did you write songs when you were a kid? Like. Like I, dumb jingles. You did? Yeah. <laughs> like I remember really that. really dumb jingles. I remember doing that as a kid, like running off in yeah. a corner, like singing into a microphone. Yeah. And doing so, so you did like just yeah. little like just ditties like and really, stuff. Just like really, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I mean, every kid in the 80s had a Casio. I don't, yeah. think, I'm, I don't think I'm unique that way. <laughs> <laughs> and then you put out four full-length records, mm-hmm. a bunch of EPs and singles. Mm-hmm. And when you were in the band, you... You earned a degree from Columbia mm-hmm. for for uh, ecology or for environmental biology. Okay, and and that was going on at the same time that you were like actively touring, recording yeah. everything. It was. What was what was going through your like mind and spirit where you were like, <laughs> I'm kind of living this life as a musician. I love this, but there's like an itch I need to scratch for like the academic science side of things or, or like what, or was it an insurance policy or like what <laughs> no. were you, what were you thinking about? No, actually. So, um, so it's, this all kind of started when, uh, the gallery I was working at, uh, called Riva gallery in Chelsea, New York, uh, 2002 went bankrupt. Okay. A lot of galleries in New York city went bankrupt post nine 11. And because we went out of business, I went on unemployment And, um, as I was looking for a job and on unemployment and plus like post nine 11, New York city was, you know, crap. I know you know that, but, um, yeah, it was really, it was a hard, it was a hard place to be. Yeah. Well, it was pretty dire. Yeah. Yeah. Like not like a hope, not a very hopeful kind of feeling. Yeah. Well, and there was a lot, I mean the, cause I graduated into that summer. It was like the stock market had crashed. Before that's right, 9/11. we graduated at the same time. Yeah, two thousand one. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Over the summer, the stock market had crashed. Yeah, and then, it's a fucked or, up time. Yeah, and then nine <laughs> eleven happened, and um, obviously, just for so many reasons, yeah, it was uh, it yeah. was a dark time. Yeah, very dark. Yeah, and um, and I was unemployed, uh, like a lot of people were. Yeah, and um, I that was when I had the time. Um, and the space once again to kind of just be like, well, this isn't, you know, (laughs) me being an artist isn't working out. I went to Parsons school of design for photography and my photography career was like, let's say this is before digital photography. Okay. So 
um, analog photography was dark super, room was super expensive. Yeah, yeah, like trying to like make it as an analog photographer in like 2001 involved having like a lot of money for dark room fees and, right. and processing. And I didn't. I was a poor like post graduate, you know, post year like graduate, but yeah, like you know, post college degree student. Yeah. So I was working in an art gallery as a gallery assistant. Went bankrupt. Got on unemployment. And that was the same time that, so the same, it was crazy. This is like a magical summer um, that I met Erica Mm -hmm. um, because our boyfriends were best friends. Okay. And she was like, oh, I've got this like, you know, kind of like after hours, like all girl keyboard group and we get together and we cover songs from the eighties and we drink tea. Would you want to come? And I was like, yeah, I've got like literally nothing better to do. (laughs) I was like, that sounds awesome. And then the other thing was, um, I had always loved astronomy and, um, I wanted to be a scientist when I was like in high school, but I basically like flunked algebra and I, and I told, and chemistry, like it was really bad. Like, but so you I, had a dream about this I stuff, dream, but like the books were no, not. No, no. And I yeah. wanted to be a scientist so bad. I was, I loved science. Like I was always watching like science documentaries and I really wanted to understand it, but I just could not do well at school. Yeah. And, um, and I told these dreams about how I wanted to be a scientist to my algebra teacher. And he basically laughed at me. I was like, <laughs> you will never be a scientist. Like, there's no way. Um, and, and my dad is a software engineer and he's like, you know, I love you, but I don't, I don't know about this. Like, I you don't, like I come don't, home with like a D yeah. plus and you're like, I'm going to be a scientist. Yeah, and they're like, like <laughs> it's like, I don't think you got this, this brain. I yeah. don't think you've got this, you know, the left, the you know, left brain. Right. Right. Um, so I started, they were wrong. They were, they, yeah, yeah, they spo- were wrong. Spoiler yeah. alert. Yeah. Spoiler alert. This is like the voiceover. <laughs> they were wrong. I don't know. I don't know. She was happened. going to prove them wrong. <laughs> One way or another. One way or another. Okay. So So I started doing, um, I found out that they had these continuing education um, adult, like adult classes um, at the Museum of Natural History. Okay. Uh, So they had like an intro to astrophysics at the Museum of Natural History taught by Charles Liu. Mm -hmm. And I signed up for that class. It was, you know, not great. I mean, some people were taking it for for the grade, but you know, I was just taking it for kind of like, yeah, sure. Again, I have like nothing better. To do. I'm like looking for jobs. I have no life. I'm going to do this. And my like weird, like after, you know, after hours girl band. Thing. Right. Right. Like um, nothing's going on. So you're basically just like following your interests I'm following my and just seeing purely. Yeah. Like stabbing in the dark. Like <laughs> just kind of like, maybe this will stick. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I started taking this class and I love it. And like the like brown noser in me immediately is like, excuse me, Dr. Luke, can I help you grade your papers? And he's like, but you don't know physics. So I'm like, I'll figure it out. So I was like helping. He, he did. He let me be the grader, which was hilarious because I couldn't understand like half the math that I was trying <laughs> to grade. But um but yeah, I was I was really, really like super invested in that class in a really big way. Like I wanted to know like all the books and read all the papers. And um, and at the, by the end of the summer, Charles, bless his heart, was basically like, you know, would you be interested in doing um, an internship at the Museum of Natural History? You know, usually this is for like kids from MIT. <laughs> 
things that are like, and like, you know, this is usually for like smart kids that but are you're promising. But you're enthusiastic. <laughs> but you're enthusiastic. Um, which was like one of the nicest things anyone's ever done for me is just be like, maybe enthusiasm is enough. And um, so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that internship. So again, because I, you know, like didn't have anything else really going on. And I was really genuinely interested. Um, and that happened to be um, an internship when Neil deGrasse Tyson, this is like before he became, you know, like you know, famous for being Neil deGrasse This was, I mean, he was right. so like well-known in New York. Yeah. But um, he wasn't like the, the figure he is now. This yeah. is probably one of like the last times at this internship where he would like had an active role in this internship. And um, so, yeah, I spent time in this internship, like learning about astrophysics. I did research. Um, I was given a research project and I had to follow through with it. And I had to like, you know, learn as much as I could without having like the background in math. Um, at the end of the internship, I had to present on my research and that was really, really scary, like to go up and, you know, present research in front of a, you know, an audience, um, of people that are way smarter than I am. <laughs> and so, um, but at the end of that, I really had like the science bug. I was like, you know what, there's no going back. Like I, I need to learn more about, um, I like, I just loved being around scientists. I loved scientific research. I love the process. Um, I loved just, yeah, the process of asking hard questions and like looking for the answers. Um, and I decided to go back to school. So first I was like, oh, well maybe I can just go right into like a graduate program. Um, because I already have a bachelor's degree, right. but like every college in New York city basically like laughed me out of the office. They're like, uh, you have an art degree. <laughs> so that's not going to They were like, no, they were like, you've never taken college math. Like you are not <laughs> going to become a scientist in my school. But yeah. So I ended up going back to school and, um, my interest in astronomy became astrobiology because I was actually really interested in, look, again, this is like a deep cut. This is, I was really yeah. interested in looking for um, microbes in Martian sediment. I was obsessed with this idea of like, you know, extremophiles and Martian microbes. What's, um, a, what's an extremophile? Extremophile is any kind of microbe that um, lives in an extreme environment, okay. like the kind you would find on Mars, which would mm -hmm. be, you know, very, very cold. Yeah. Um, Did you love science fiction and oh my all God, that stuff yeah. growing like, up? And Big science fiction nerds. Yeah. So, and Star Trek and all that. So, yeah. Um, so at Columbia, so I, so I applied to Columbia and I got in and, um, I had gone in as an ast a potential astronomy student. Mm -hmm. And then I started talking to my advisors about astrobiology and this was still really like astrobiology is a huge thing now, but back in 2005, it was still almost considered like fringe. Mm. And so the astronomy department at Columbia was like, mm, microbes in Martian soil. Like we don't really do that here. So I was like, yeah, but I really, really want to like understand, you know, what this would be like. And so they're like, well, you can look at microbes in dirt. Like you can look at microbes in soil on earth. And I was like, well, that's not Mars. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, you could find like, like that was a path basically right. to becoming an, um, an astrobiologist. So I started asking around to Columbia, well, who studies microbes in soil? Mm -hmm. And I got hooked up with a, an amazing woman who became my advisor named Krista McGuire. 
And um, Dr. McGuire invited me into her lab and she was looking at microbes in soil in the tropics. Mm -hmm. And that is how I became a tropical microbiologist. (laughs) Because you were like, well, here's something on our own planet that sparks my interest as much as space. Exactly. So I I was mainly interested in what bacteria and fungi do in soil. I mean, it'd be cool if that soil was a Mars, but it's, <laughs> but you know, we don't have that yet. So, and that took you to, is it Malaysia or no? Yes. It, to Malaysia. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you, you studied soil. I was and... looking at, um, the impact that oil palm agriculture has on microbial communities in soil. In okay. The tropics. Yeah. And so once you got this degree, uh, over these years, seven years, seven years. <laughs> yeah. So like from the time you started it mm-hmm. to the time you finished yeah. it. The band was just going up, up, up and yes. taking more time and Yeah. Focus. My life was crazy. Like I like I remember one time I had to fly to Portugal for a festival and I had a final on Monday. And so I had to fly back. I was like in Portugal for 24 hours to play a show basically and then I had to take a final on Monday. And that was my life for seven years. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was the song Crazy from the album Move in Spectrums from Heather's band Avoir Simone. Let's continue the conversation with Heather. So you graduated and then you basically went and focused on music full time. Uh, I graduated in 2012. Oh, okay. And we okay. released Move in Spectrums. So as soon as I graduated, we released our last album. Okay. We went on tour for quite a long time. Yeah. And then shortly after that, I moved to San Francisco. Right. <laughs> and then you you picked up like the science thread yes, here exactly. and you started writing for companies. Mm-hmm. And- I started, um, so I realized that I was not going to be a scientist, but that my actual strength is science communication. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started being a science journalist for a really cool environmental news site called Manga Bay. Um, okay. It's actually based in the Bay Area. And um, then I started doing science communication for the Asner Lab, which is where I work now. And we were at Stanford through the Carnegie Institute of Science, but now we're um, at Arizona State University. Okay. And is that connection to soil and discovering soil related to your first fragrance fragrance yes. that you created <laughs> so it like is. how how was that fragrance discovered and i know there was like a lot of um a lot of research a lot of trekking a lot of there was. Uh, camping out and and dealing with mother nature to to discover it so um 
when I had, you know, been teaching myself perfume and I mean, there's a lot of perfumers. Um, it's a pretty cluttered landscape, much like there's a lot of musicians. It's kind of like, how are you going to do anything different? Right. Um, you know, are worth saying. And I just knew that I wanted my first perfume to be um, like a Valentine to my field work. I almost called the perfume field work and to tropical field work because I missed it. I missed um, going into, you know, the rainforest in Malaysia and Borneo and like taking soil cores. That's what I was doing for hours and hours, which is taking soil cores out of the ground. And then you go back to the lab and you sieve the, um, sieve the, the soil cores, you take out all the rocks and everything. And then you have to, um, you take samples of the soil and you extract the DNA from it. That's basically the general process of, uh, understanding microbial communities. But anyway, I spent a lot of time like sniffing dirt <laughs> and leaves, basically like a lot of leaves and dirt. And to me, that smell of like leaves and dirt and heat and the tropics, um, and sweat, like these, like, I just have this, like these really strong memories of that. And they're like very precious memories to me. And I always, that was one of the smells where I was like, I always wish I could bottle that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that's what I set out to do with my fragrance. And, um, and I knew also from a sustainability standpoint, you know, from having been in that world, um, like, you know, a, a bit into agriculture and like how terrible large scale agriculture could be. I was really mindful about the products that I use in my perfume brand and making sure that I'm not using anything that's unsustainable. So, um, I knew I wanted to feature some type of like that the main essential oil in my fragrance would be sourced from somewhere that like is making, you know, a difference in the world or like just either sourced sustainably or I wasn't really sure, but I um, ended up finding this organization called Camino Verde, located in the Peruvian Amazon. Um, weirdly enough, in the same location, um, which is the Tambopata province, mm -hmm. which is the same location where I first ever visited the rainforest. I went there as a just as a tourist. Um, yeah. But um, but that that area was meaningful to me because it was my first experience ever with being in the tropics. Um, so I looked fondly, you know, back on that when I was mm -hmm. actually doing tropical research. I was like, oh, yeah, the Amazon. Um, so, yeah, so Camino Verde, um, they source an essential oil called Mo Moena Alconfor uh, as, you know, part of a larger, like, conservation initiative um, to, like, protect the rainforest. They basically use the sales of Moena to buy up primary rainforest to protect it as well as to reforest land that has been destroyed by um, gold mining or just logging. Yeah. They're a really awesome organization. So I flew to the Peruvian Amazon, flew to Camino Verde, um, checked out the distillation of Moena. I totally fell in love with the scent and that is the star of my perfume. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. And folks can get the perfume now? Indeed. Yeah. On my website. Nice. I'm at various other locations in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what's ahead in terms of like music and perfumes and, and science all of this. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's this trio. Yeah. This yeah. Bizarre trio. Yeah. A lot of things. Um, I am working on an ambient album with Annie. That is like kind of a like weird, like I would say like love letter to vintage synths. Although I guess you'd arguably say all of Avoisimone was like that, but this is, it's not a pop album. It's definitely yeah. really, it's like anti-pop. <laughs> and 
Um, with fragrance, I am releasing a smaller bottle, um, bottle size of Moana, of Moana 1269. Um, my first bottle was 50 milliliters. This one will be 15 and will be in a more affordable, uh, approachable price point. Wow. Um, I'm also talking with, I've been, I've been speaking with a lot of farms at this point, trying to find like my next star essential oil. Um, it's hard because I want to do things sustainably. And when you start really looking into these farms and trying to figure out the transparency around their farming practices, like I just keep being disappointed Mm -hmm. and I, I'm trying like to keep my hopes up that Camino Verde wasn't just some like, (laughs) you know, like fluke. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, essential oils take a lot of land to produce and a lot of resources. So it's, it's hard. Um, And then science communication. Yeah, still doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, how do you kind of um, pivot, so to speak, between being so deeply entrenched as a, a musician and, and that life and identity and, uh, you know, going through customs and declaring <laughs> your, your, your work and this, this totally other, um, you know, part of, part of your life? I think that's a really great question. Um, I think that like the greatest challenge of, you know, my life in terms of identity has been, um, to force myself to stop seeing these things as separate pieces and to, as you know, as you were saying, they are just different expressions of the same thing, but that that does not mean that they are totally different identities. And, um, And I think that just in our culture, I mean, it's just normal for you to be one thing or the other, you know, even, even with thinking when I was, you know, a teenager thinking like, oh, well, I want to be a scientist, but my brain just doesn't work that way. And, um, I think a lot of people put themselves into boxes. Um, I think everyone puts themselves into boxes. Everyone gives themselves labels and it's really easy to say, I'm this, I'm not that. There's a lot of like black and white thinking around it. But, um, as I've gotten older, um, I think I've become more comfortable with the idea that it's all coming from the same place. You know, ultimately it's all communication for me. I mean, whether I'm communicating through perfume or communicating through music or communicating, you know, ideas about science, like I think what I naturally want to do in this world, or I say my purpose is to just communicate yeah. um, beauty and, um, it's easy to communicate beauty through art. I mean, that's what that is in a way, like kind of what art is. But yeah. um, communicating beauty in science is is another thing. Like what I find enjoyable about science are like these big ideas that are beautiful inherently. And um, that's what I get excited about. And I, and I think that when I try to put on a different hat and really explain things like very technically and to communicate, you know, as a scientist to another scientist, like I fail, you know, but what I'm good at is finding the beauty in something or why something is worth paying attention to and communicating that. Um, so I just try to focus on that, you know, like, yeah, yeah, my way of seeing the world and my interpretation of it. Do you have advice for people who are, yeah, they're, they're feeling like they are one thing or the other, they've labeled themselves or they want to they want to stretch in different directions where they're being told they maybe don't have, you know, 
whatever the the ideal um you know knowledge or you know learning yeah. going into it is i mean there's two things i'd say like the first is like you can always try something if you fail like who cares like yeah um i'm a big proponent in like things being secret um i think with social media there's you know and I sound like very old as I'm like, what's social thing about social media? <laughs> the kids are sharing everything. <laughs> These kids share too much. It's too much out there. It's, it's true. Like, I really do believe that when people are just like, oh, I took a ceramics class today. I'm going to post about it on Instagram. Like, why can't that be your secret? Like, just you can have like these like little interests of yours, these cool things that you're doing. You don't have to tell everyone about them all the time until you're ready to tell them about it. Like, because I, I think what can happen is then you like, maybe let's say you take a ceramics class for the first time and people are like, oh, that's so cool. Can't wait to see what you make, you know? And, and then there's all this pressure like, oh, shit, well, I, <laughs> I got to make something. Then I got to post about it. And, and then, you know, or other people be like, oh, ceramics. How interesting. I didn't know that you do ceramics. I thought you were a mathematician. And then there's all this judgment around us. So you're like, well, I guess I'll just never go back to that <laughs> ceramics class again. Right. Because, you know, Aunt Martha's judging me. <laughs> so, like, I, I think there's way too much sharing, I think, about that kind of stuff. Like, you can take a class. You can explore an interest and just have it be like a little secret with yourself until you're ready to share it. Yeah. Um, because then there's no expectations. There's no judgment. It's just you mm-hmm. maybe like allowing yourself to be a little foolish. And then um, the other thing is that I am a very like strong proponent of collaborations. Um, I never, ever, ever in a million years would have become a musician if not for Annie and Erica. Like it's, I would never, never. Well, first of all, it wouldn't have crossed my mind. Second of all, <laughs> like, I mean... Um, and then to even have the audacity to think it's something I could do professionally, like no way. I mean, it's, but there's almost like this kind of like, uh, what's the word? Like just amazing delusion of grandeur when you're with other people and they're like, we're great. This is great. And you're like, yeah, okay, I guess so. And then like, and eventually you drink the Kool-Aid and you're like, oh, maybe this is good. And right. I mean, there's so many times I can remember where Annie, you know, who's just like, the very pinnacle of positivity, um, would be like, oh, we're totally going to tour. Oh yeah. We're, we're going to tour next summer. And this was like back when we had like covers of like, of, you know, like, um, like Belinda Carlisle covers. And I'm like, (laughs) Annie, we're never touring. Like nobody (laughs) wants to hear us. Like we're not even going to play like in a local bar. Like just get that idea out of your mind. Like this is never leaving this bedroom. Like ever. Did you say things like that? Oh yeah. I was terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're still like, we're still best friends to this day. <laughs> so she, she, uh, she and I just really get each other. That's awesome. Um, and I love her positivity because I think like you need people like that. You yeah. know, I mean, especially if you're kind of like a negative critical person yourself, like for someone to just like have that kind of belief and be like, no, this is good. This right. is worth sharing. Right. Like, I, th- I think for anyone that feels very like one track, like I'm a scientist and I'll never be a pianist. Like, Maybe just start, you know, like find some other people that feel the way you do, or maybe find like a group of people, like where there's one good pianist and two other right. people that are like, hey, pianist is a weird word to say. Yeah. Like, maybe like find some other people that are in the same mindset as you, and as a group, you can lift each other up and find confidence. Yeah, there is there is something special about um, collaborating and, and teams, and it kind of it alleviates some of the the pressure because it's like distributed. And I think it maybe creates space for, for creativity. 
Um, and it, way better said than what I just <laughs> said. <laughs> it's easy to say it after you've been talking. I have time to think about it. But um, there's also like, you know, somebody might come up with an idea that seems outlandish, but the mere fact that there's two people discussing it, it feels more possible than uh, this is something I have to do all on my own. Yeah, um, that's absolutely true. There's like a relief to it. Yeah. Okay, so you're not a you're not a trust fund baby. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that when, I think that there's definitely a thing that when people hear about like people having very creative, odd paths, like they assume like, oh, there must have just been some like, you know, wellspring of money or this is all coming from. Yeah. Um, but no, it's like, I have just always really hustled. Like I had a lot of jobs, I had like a lot of weird jobs, especially during the Columbia, um, touring time. Like I was, I was making money like as a musician right. and towards the end of, um, you know, like by move and spectrums times we were making really good money. And you, it was all your, like you owned the label yes. and, and That's key. owned all the music as key throughout the we whole. owned all the music. Right. And we started being licensed to, um, commercials and TV. And that is what completely funded us that and touring. So we were touring a lot and, um, and getting a lot of licensing. And so yeah. we were all making like living wages as musicians, which yeah. is incredible. Um, but and like, you were basically running a small business yeah, yeah, totally. as musicians because Absolutely. you ran everything. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's not like there were like, none of us were like trust fund kids, you know, neither Annie nor Erica nor I. So it's not like we just had some like cushy thing. Like we just all had side hustles, side jobs. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think there's a lot of like <laughs> positions like that. I don't think there's a lot of positions like that. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, you know, if you're out there listening and, uh, you just want Heather in there for a few months, just do whatever. sharing these ideas, um, <laughs> make really weird connections between completely unrelated things. That's, that's my, that's what I do. <laughs> no, there's, there's more. Um, but no, that's, I think that's great to hear that, um, you know, the, the the truth behind it it was not you know nothing was like handed out and uh and it was uh it wasn't easy that's always a lot of hard work well thanks so much for being on the show heather this is awesome thank you yeah. for having me yeah thanks and everyone I, for listening yeah i tried to get you to sing a song or something but that didn't happen <laughs> since you kind of like were a little sing songy in that goodbye it's oh, like yeah. give me something no <laughs> Um, but, uh, you can hear Arvois Simone's music everywhere and new music. Cartofragrances.com. Yep. And new music in the future. Yeah. And watch Twin Peaks. Oh yeah. For you. And also because this it's. This is the best show. Yeah. It's awesome. just amazing. Episode eight. Episode eight. I was just going to say that. Everything. I was going to say episode eight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want to name my first child episode, episode eight. eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for like a very you know, distinct audience. They'll, they'll, Would eight they'll be get the it. middle name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, episode eight. It's just like the full full name, like Madonna. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Rob. That was my conversation with Heather D'Angelo. Heather, thank you so much for joining the show, for being so open and giving so much in the conversation. I hope that everyone out there listening has learned a little bit more about maybe a band that you love or gotten to know the experiences of someone who is passionate in a lot of areas and maybe got some advice about how to pivot, how to change focus, and how to bring it all together in 
a singular, maybe multifaceted version of a creative career. Making Ways is produced by me, Rob Goodman. It's sound engineered and mixed by Jim Metzendorf, who's amazing. We thank Jim for his awesome work on Making Ways. Our intro music is by The Sandworms, and we've got some music by Jim Heffernan in the mix. Please leave a review on iTunes if you haven't done that yet. It would mean a lot to me. And you should go to makingwayspodcast.com, sign up for our newsletter where you can learn more about the show, hear about events we're having, merchandise that's available for sale, and so much more. And I thought we'd do something different this week and close out the whole episode with the song Stars from the album The Bird of Music. And Heather is here playing and on vocals, and the band is Avoa Simone. Check it out, and I'll talk to you soon.